Hey, good evening, Village Church. My name is Mitchell. I'm one of the pastors here at Village. It's my privilege to open up God's Word tonight. Uh, if you do have a Bible up in front of you, please do keep it open. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you should find one on the pew in front of you. Um, you can open it up there to Matthew's Gospel, uh, first book in the New Testament. Uh, that's my number up there on the screen. Uh, if you'd want to text through any questions uh, throughout the talk, we like to spend some time afterward um, discussing the passage, discussing the, uh, the, uh, any questions you might have uh, as a community, a uh, chance for you to push back as well, anything that wasn't clear or anything that I may have um, misspoke. Well, uh, before we get stuck into it, though, why don't I pray, ask for God's help, and then uh, we'll open up, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll dive deep into this passage together, talk about discipleship. Uh, please join with me in prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, I pray that you might strengthen us with your spirit tonight. I pray that uh, you would be feeding us with your word that we might respond to your call to come out of darkness and into light. I pray, Lord, that you would enlarge our hearts to be able to receive your word, and by receiving it, we might fall more in love with you and grow uh, deeper as your followers. We pray all these things in your beautiful name. Amen. Very last words of Jesus as he wraps up his earthly ministry, they come at the very end of Matthew's gospel. Uh, so Jesus, he's just risen from the dead. He's about to go back up into heaven. Uh, his followers gather around him one last time. And he says this, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, how does Jesus wrap up his earthly ministry? The answer, by commanding his followers to make disciples. And how does Jesus begin his earthly ministry? The answer is by making disciples. Discipleship sits at the very heart, all that Jesus was on about. So for us, uh, if we want to be growing as followers of Jesus here at Village Church, we need to be thinking about discipleship, what that looks like in our own community uh, here, starting tonight. That is, at Village Church, we want to make immature disciples who are radically committed to the cause of Christ, who makes and matures disciples. All right, that's where we're heading tonight. What does that look like? Here's where I want to begin. Number one, the call of discipleship. The call of discipleship, starting in verse 12. Matthew 4, starting in verse 12. That is, discipleship begins when Christ calls us out of darkness and into light. Now, Matthew 4, verse 12 introduces a shift in the story of Jesus. The ministry of John the Baptist comes to an end. Public ministry of Jesus takes over. And this shift is signaled uh, by Jesus moving house. It's a move that Jesus makes. That is, he, 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 he leaves his hometown of Nazareth, and he travels up north, settling down in Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. Uh, so it becomes his ministry headquarters for the next few years. You can, you can see that there on the screen. Uh, but, 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 but see how this comes out of the passage from verse 12. When he, Jesus, heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth, went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. I moved house, uh, what was it now, just over a year ago. Uh, when I moved house, it was because my landlady uh, wanted to cash in on the property boom. Uh, so she gave me the boot. She wanted to sell her unit, so she gave me the boot. Uh, so I, I moved a few streets over. But here we're told, Matthew verse 14, uh, 4 verse 14, we're told Jesus' move, it wasn't for pragmatic reasons. Rather, this was to fulfill 
what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, right? Same, same place names. Along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the, Gentiles, of the Gentiles, verse 16, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. For those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Okay, so in other words, Jesus, he wasn't just looking for a sea change when he moved house. It was to fulfill, to fulfill some pretty hefty promises from God. See, back in Isaiah's day, Israel had been smashed by the Assyrian army, sent into exile. And uh, the land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, up in the northern region, they were hit particularly hard. And that's why, verse 16, these, these people, they're, they're, they're described as living in darkness, in the shadow of death. And it's here, in this most hopeless and war-torn land, that God promises to raise up a leader who's going to deliver his people from darkness into light and life. Okay? What Matthew is saying here, what Matthew's saying here is that Jesus is that deliverer. He is our rescuer. It's sort of be like a news reporter standing in the rubble of some war-torn country's city center and declaring right over the airwaves, uh, the enemy is gone, the war is over, we will rebuild, starting here. But with one major difference. Jesus is not interested in restoring the homeland to the people. Rather, he's wanting to restore his people to their true home, heaven. You see how Jesus says this, verse 17, the kingdom of heaven has come near. In other words, Jesus, he wants to lead us out of darkness, that is spiritual death, and into the light, that is to reconcile us with the God who created us and loves us. And how does he do that? Well, by calling us to repentance, through calling us. Uh, verse 17 again in its entirety, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now again, that word repentance, we looked at this two weeks ago as a reminder. This is less of a feeling word, more of a doing word, right? To use the example that Sam shared, if you're on a road trip to, 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 to Sydney, right, which is south of here, and suddenly you see a sign for Cairns, which is north of here, simply knowing that you're heading toward Cairns is not going to get you to Sydney, right? Feeling bad that you got onto the wrong road somewhere is not going to get you to Sydney. You've actually got to change direction, right? You've got, you got to chuck a Yui, go the opposite way. So it is with repentance. Repentance is not about feeling, it's not merely about feeling guilty about yourself or, or, or feeling bad about yourself. It's about stopping what you're doing, changing direction, and turning around. That is to stop living for yourself and following the way of the world and start living for Jesus, following the way heaven. In other words, you might say that before Jesus says, follow me, he calls us to repent, right? This is the call of discipleship. If you're a Christian here today, here's what that might look like. Two things. First thing, all of life is repentance. All of life is repentance. That is, as believers, uh, repentance, it's not just, it's not a one and done sort of thing. Now, to be clear, absolutely, we must first respond to the initial call of salvation, 
right? There's going to be that initial response, that initial repentance, but then every moment afterward requires ongoing course correction. Uh, it's like, have you, have you ever watched a bird fly? You notice their tail feathers making these constant micro-adjustments, right? Just to, to, to keep them on their flight path. So it is for us. We are constantly needing to reorient ourselves in order to keep following Jesus faithfully. Which means, secondly, as we think about our own community, we need to be asking ourselves, how can we always be making it easy for someone to do the right thing? How can we actually be making it easier for people to do the right thing? Because repentance is hard. It's a vulnerable thing. It takes a lot of emotional energy to change direction. So don't make it harder than it already is. But then, if you are someone here today, um, you're not yet a Christian, maybe you're here today, uh, you're investigating it, exploring Christian faith, your next step in this, if that's you, your next step, well, it is to respond to Christ's call of discipleship. That is, to repent for the very first time, to change direction for the first time. And I think, I wonder, one of the challenges here, I think, is to be tempted to believe that, that Christian faith isn't for you. You know, maybe, maybe you look around and, and you think, yeah, it, it, it makes sense for, for other people out there, but not, not for yourself. Maybe because of, of, of who you think you are or maybe some of the choices that you've made in life. But if, if that is you, can I say, just consider the metaphor that Matthew uses here to describe all of us before coming to faith. All of humanity before Christ. See, when Matthew says that the light of Christ has dawned on the darkest places, what he's saying is salvation is not about what you can or cannot do for God. All right? You're in darkness. Nothing you can do. Rather, salvation can only ever be received for what it is, a gift of grace. Right? Something we receive as a gift. So, for example, I, um, I was talking to a woman recently. She was sharing her faith story, uh, shared how she grew up in a, in a, well, a rather difficult home. Nobody in her family were followers or believers, um, which, you know, led to quite a, uh, a lot of, well, quite a lot of brokenness, actually, in her home. And so, as a teenager, she sort of um, found herself living a life as any teen in her situation might, uh, seeking comfort, finding meaning through the different sort of pleasures, experiences that the world held out for her. Uh, eventually, though, after a little while, somebody invited her to church. Uh, she was really moved. Uh, she was brought into a community, was really moved by what she experienced. Uh, she threw her life into it. But then after a while, um, she actually discovered that this wasn't a Christian church uh, she was invited into. It's actually a religious cult. And so for someone with that background, just imagine the sort of hurt and the pain that, that comes with that, the embarrassment even. But around that time and, and how she found out she was in a cult was um, actually a friend of hers, by God's grace, came alongside her and preached the gospel to her, the good news of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Her heart came alive for the very first time as she responded to this calling, Christ's calling. She then found herself this time in a Christian community, uh, in a church that opened up the Bible every Sunday, would point her to Jesus. Over the years, she grew as a disciple. Uh, God delivered her from a number of addictions, called her into a radically new lifestyle. And now, uh, this woman, she gives up most of her free time to make and mature other disciples, especially other women who are the same age that she was when she first responded to Christ's call. 
It's just, just a beautiful example of one woman's experience, one woman's uh, a journey to, to, to faith in Christ, to responding to Christ's call. And so for some, some of you here, not everyone, but for some of you, you you've, you've maybe been hanging around the sort of perimeter of faith for, for, for quite some time now, um, just sort of uh, sitting on the fence as you make your observations, you sort of weigh things up, which can I say as, as one of the pastors here, it's, it's really great. Like, it's really awesome having you here. It's been, uh, uh, it's been a lot of, uh, uh, it's been a really beautiful experience, fielding questions and sort of showing off the, the, the community. But if that is you, all I want to do right now is just invite you in. Right? Hop off that proverbial fence. Respond to Christ's call to repent. Um, can I tell you, it's a much better experience from the inside, experiencing the relationship uh, of love that God is offering to us tonight. Now, our next section, it's going to flesh that out a little bit more, what that looks like. But just for now, that's the first point. That discipleship begins when Christ calls us out of darkness and into light. And the point here being that nobody is beyond his reach. Yeah? So let's continue to create those sort of communities that make repentance easy, that make this something that we, we, we can all do. All right, but once we're called, our next step is to start giving ourselves over to Jesus. That brings us to our second point for tonight, the cost of discipleship, the cost of discipleship from verse 18. That is, we need to be willing to count the cost of following Jesus, even as he calls us to give up certain desires for the sake of his kingdom. All right, let's pick up the story from verse 18. Uh, as we saw, Jesus, he's just finished calling us to repent. And now we get a bit of a pattern for what that looks like in our own lives. As the very first disciples take up Jesus' invitation to follow him. So from verse 18 there. Uh, as he, Jesus, was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea because uh, they're fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I'll make you fish for people. And immediately, they left their nets and followed him. I, I love that last bit there in verse 20. There's something I think so beautifully appropriate about their urgency to follow Jesus. Immediately, they left their nets. Gives a bit of a pattern for our own discipleship right off the start, doesn't it? That is, whatever I used to occupy myself with, I am now to give myself over, to be with Jesus, to follow his call on my life. And then what we find is uh, two examples of what that looks like. The first one here in our passage uh, pushes us to consider how it is we approach our own work as followers of Jesus, right? See, when Andrew and uh, Peter are called, we find them casting their nets into the sea. Now, fishermen didn't by any means live a luxurious lifestyle, but they would have definitely been considered, they'd, um, they'd be like the equivalent of our middle class today. The sort of equivalent of small business owners. By this time, quite a booming fishing industry had developed around the Sea of Galilee, uh, always markets where you could offload your catch. So, uh, sure, that may, uh, a fisherman's not living in a palace by any means, but they nevertheless lived a very stable and comfortable life. Never had to worry how they'd make ends meet. Would never have to worry where their next uh, meal came from. Because it came from the ocean. <laughs> Thanks. That was actually Philip's joke. <laughs> And yet, without hesitation, we're told, verse 20, they leave their nets behind on the beach, they follow Jesus. Now, why? Why? Why would, why would they do that? It's because Jesus has given them a completely different set of priorities, hasn't he? He says that if they follow him, he will make them fish for people. Now, again, there's nothing fishy about this. 
It's not like Jesus is calling his disciples to some slick-style, televangelist kind of manipulation to win people over. He's just, he's using an analogy, right? Just as they used to gather together fish each day, so they'll now spend their time gathering together people who also want to follow Jesus. Reminds me a little bit of uh, Sam Chan's story. A bunch of you would know Sam Chan. He was a doctor, uh, was a successful doctor down in Sydney. Uh, can only imagine the kind of dosh he'd be raking in down there uh, doing that sort of work. Uh, but he gave it all up. Gave it all up to give himself over to full-time evangelism. Not, and not just sharing the gospel with others, but actually teaching, training others on how to share the gospel with their friends. Again, why? Why would someone do this? Because as followers of Jesus, we're given a completely new set of priorities. Obviously, that's just one example. Not all of us are going to be called. Uh, most of us aren't going to be called into full-time vocational ministry. But all of us are called to give ourselves over completely to Jesus, which includes how we view our work. All right, so, so for, for, for example, and it's just an example, but if work is taking up all of your time, all of your emotional energy, I reckon you need to ask yourself why. So if you've got no time left over to for example, regularly attend a community group, maybe, or no energy to catch up one-on-one, -on -one, uh, open up the Bible with someone and, and, and pray with them, or even if you're constantly showing up to church just exhausted because you're throwing yourself into your work or even your weekend hobbies, I think what this part of God's Word is pushing you to consider is that following Jesus is not just something you can kind of um, tack on to your life. It's not as if you can sort of juggle work over here and, and, and hobbies over there and then sort of try to keep your faith alive over here. Rather, following Jesus has got to be an all-of-life sort of thing. You've got to let it completely take over. You can't just add it on to whatever it is you're already doing without first counting the cost. Now, I know, of course, absolutely there are caveats here. I, I, I don't want to be overly simplistic. I completely understand that. But the point is... The principle here is we want to be giving ourselves over completely to investing in eternal treasure, right? Like making and maturing disciples, instead of just giving ourselves over to making life more comfortable for ourselves. All right, just an example. Another example, though, uh, that we're given uh, is how Christ's invitation to follow him uh, actually impacts our relationships. Because in the second scene, that's exactly what we find happening. See, um, if you read the two stories side by side, they're nearly identical, except James and John leave one more thing behind. All right, check it out for yourself, verse 21. Going on from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They're in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets, and he called them immediately, right? Same urgency. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, can I say this is an even more sensitive area than our work? Uh, because we, 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 we are social beings. Relationships touch us at our very core. So please listen graciously. Yet what Jesus is saying is that sometimes you may even have to leave loved ones behind in order to follow him. Now, again, listen closely. Other places in scripture, right? They will say some fairly harsh things to those people who fail to provide for their family, to take care of their family, okay? 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 comes to mind. 
But at the same time, there are going to be those moments when following Jesus can cause division with our loved ones, maybe even in our own households. And in those times, what does faithful discipleship look like? Okay, so for example, at Village Church here, we've been absolutely blessed to have people join us from all over the world. All over. Some of them come from very different religious, cultural backgrounds, and I can think of a few friends who knew that getting baptized into Christ would mean being disowned by their family, or at the very least, real high tension with their family, and still, they made the courageous decision to follow Jesus, publicly confess their faith, and get baptized. And then we've even had others here who being baptized into Christ meant not only whole families turning against them, but whole countries. Like literally making this decision would mean never being allowed to step foot again in their homeland. And still, they made the decision to follow Jesus, publicly confess him, and get baptized. Right? Or, or maybe consider something closer to the average Western experience, dating and marriage. I right? know for me, um, a, 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 a lot of my friends um, who aren't yet Christian, you know, they want to talk about relationships a lot. Uh, they're baffled why, why I wouldn't want to be keen to date someone who isn't a Christian. Uh, from their perspective, of course, it makes sense. Uh, all couples have individual and shared interests, and since faith is such a private affair, they, they, they reason, why can't this just be one of the things that you don't share with, with, with a partner? It just sort of laying aside for a moment the sort of theological reasons, even commands in Scripture, just at a purely practical level, like we've seen already, being a disciple of Jesus impacts me at every single level of existence. Like how I spend my free time, how I use my money, how I make friends, how I view the world, um, what my definition of success is, and on and on and on. And so while scripture commands us to love and serve all people, it also commands us to think, just think very carefully about how we handle romantic relationships, especially those relationships that we, we might choose to be united, united to in, in, in marriage. Now again, please hear me out. There are going to be caveats here, of course. Scripture is also very keenly aware of situations where married people do find themselves in a scenario where one of them is, is, is a follower and the other isn't, and how to navigate that as a believer. But again, the principle here is that being part of being a faithful disciple of Jesus is considering how we view all relationships, including even our romantic ones, and then being wise in how we approach them. Uh, so for example, Sam Albury, something that Sam Albury has come to, uh, has had to come to terms with. Uh, so he's a minister over in England. Uh, he's primarily same-sex attracted. He therefore wants to help other Christians like him navigate their sexuality in a way that, that, that honors Jesus. Uh, he did a podcast recently where he was talking about how we can be making churches that are more loving places for people going through the same sort of thing. Um, he had this great through line that I thought was really helpful in the podcast. He says, if the gospel isn't good news for you, then it's not good news for anyone. Right? So he's speaking to his friends here who might be uh, navigating the same things he is. If the gospel is not good news for you, it's not good news for anyone. In other words, the gospel either speaks life into every single situation we might face, or it doesn't say a thing. So my encouragement is, if the gospel feels more like a death sentence than a call to new life, we've likely maybe not yet been truly captivated by its message. 
which only reminds me of Jesus' own words a little later on in Matthew when he says, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. Right? So look, is there a very real cost of following Jesus? Absolutely there is. Absolutely. And yet the sacrifices we make as we follow Jesus who made the ultimate sacrifice for us all these sacrifices, big and small, will eventually give way to an eternal glory as God weaves together all of our losses, all of our suffering into his tapestry of grace. Okay? So, so far we've looked at the call of discipleship, being a call to repentance, turning around, following Jesus. We've heard about the cost of discipleship, that is, following Jesus will involve letting go, sometimes, of certain dreams, desires, right? The call, the cost. But now the cause of discipleship. What are, we, what are we working towards as disciples? What's our goal? What's our cause? Uh, this brings us to our last point. The cause of discipleship from verse 23. That is, disciples go out into the world proclaiming the good news of Jesus in order to make more disciples. It's hot up here. Just give me a moment. Yeah, that'd be great, Tony. Thank you. In this final section, Matthew gives us a bit of a highlight reel of, of, of Jesus' public ministry, uh, sort of a, a, a montage sequence, as our film buffs might say. Uh, so it sort of spans a, a period of Jesus' time ministering. What do we find then at the very heart of his message? What's at the center of all of Jesus' teaching? Well, we get a clue. We're given a clue in verse 23. Uh, Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in the synagogues. Here's our clue preaching the good news of the kingdom, okay? Preaching the good news. Now, that phrase, good news, it's where we get the word gospel. Gospel just means good news. And so if the question is, how can we become mature disciples who go on to make disciples? Well, the answer begins, begins here. Thanks, Tom. Mm -hmm. The answer, the answer begins here. That is, um, disciples are not primarily made um, just by being kind to others or through good works or leading by example, although discipleship will involve all that stuff. But there's a message here, isn't there? There's a gospel that needs to be proclaimed. And Jesus went around proclaiming it so that others would know him and believe in him and follow him. And it only makes sense then that if Jesus did this, he expects us to do the same if we want to be his disciples. But it begs the question, though, why is the gospel good news? Or, we might say, how does it speak into our own lives? Why is, why is the gospel message that, that, that's worth sharing, how does it speak into our own lives as we try to navigate an often difficult and painful world? We find another clue in verse 23, don't we? Uh, so Jesus began going around preaching the good news of the kingdom and, see that there at the uh, halfway through, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Now, no doubt in Jesus' day, people were suffering in so many different ways. Disabilities, chronic illness, diseases taking over people's bodies, so much pain, so much heartache, just like today, isn't it? And yet we're told that as Jesus proclaims the good news, he also heals every person he encounters. 
right? We're given more details in verse 24. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria, so they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases, intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, the paralytics, and he healed them. Now, this is really good news. Of, of, of course Jesus' fame spread, spread throughout the region, right? Of course. But our hearts wonder, don't they? Can it, like, can it be true? And the answer is yes, when we understand what's truly going on here. You see, when Jesus performs miracles, it's never, ever to show off his raw power. All right? So, for, for example, Jesus never, you know, whatever, nudges Simon Peter and says, hey, hey check, check, check this out, and just sort of, you know, blasts a mountain to smithereens just by pointing his finger at it. Rather, what Jesus is doing in his miracles, and particularly, can I say, in his healings, what he's doing is restoring creation back to how God intended it to be. Okay? So remember, Jesus is the one where all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And he now comes to work towards making all things new. Right? He's working towards new creation. And the final clue that we find in our passage for this comes in the middle of verse 24. That is, some of those whom Jesus healed involved the demon-possessed. Demonic activity is a reminder of why there's sickness in the world in the first place. Because all sickness, suffering, even death is ultimate result of sin and evil. It's a result of living in a broken and a fallen world. And so why is the gospel good news? Well, it's not simply because Jesus can heal the sick, right? Sickness isn't the root cause, that's just a symptom. Rather, the root cause of all pain and suffering is sin in the world. So ultimately, the gospel of Jesus is only good news if Jesus can finally do something about human sin. And that's exactly what's happening at the cross, isn't it? At the cross, Jesus actually becomes sin for us in order to pay a debt he did not owe. And since all sin leads to death, well, the final proof that Jesus can really do something about all the brokenness we see in the world is seen in whether he can really do something about death, like once and for all. That's what's happening in the resurrection, isn't it? Since the debt that Jesus paid was not his own, death couldn't hold him down. So three days later, he rises victoriously over death, therefore proving his power over sin. Okay, so rewind a second. Why is the gospel good news? The answer, it's good news because in the life, death, and resurrection, Jesus finally dealt with our sin. He, he removed it from us. He nailed it to the cross. He gave us his resurrection life in its place. Friends, that is the gospel message. That is the good news that, that gathers together new followers of Jesus. So as we wrap up, here's where I think the passage is pushing us toward. First, we can joyfully submit to Christ's call of discipleship because Jesus wants to lead us into something so gloriously beautiful, we can't even begin to imagine it. Listen, Jesus is making all things new. And one day, heaven and earth will become one. And on that day, Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more because the previous things have, been, have, have, have passed away. 
Okay? So then, secondly, our goal in the meantime is to work toward this new creation. And we do that by deliberately carrying this gospel message into whatever pockets of life God's called you into. Right? That, that final scene, verse 25, large crowds followed Jesus from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, beyond the Jordan, all those place names listed there at the end from around the then known world. It's a reminder, isn't it? It's a reminder of what's to come in the Great Commission as God calls all of us to go and make disciples of all nations. And so for us, mission starts at the ends of our toes, reaches out to the ends of the earth. Right? So who are the people God wants you to reach? Maybe a family member, someone you love, someone you sit next to at work, school or uni. Is God maybe even calling you to the more darker pockets of our city, maybe even out into the wider world? Because being a mature disciple means making and maturing disciples who want to make and mature disciples, who get on with the mission of making and maturing disciples of Jesus. All right, why don't I pray for those things now? Great and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us out of darkness and into light. But God, we just want to take a moment now to repent, uh, to confess that we don't always get this right. We don't always do the things that um, you call us to do. We don't always, we don't always say the things that, 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 you call, that you call us to say. Lord, forgive us. Keep us, uh, strengthen us by your spirit that we might keep following after you, that we might keep every day waking up and, and, and considering the cost of following you. Lord, I do pray for those here tonight who are suffering great losses, for the broken and the weary and the grieving, those who've had to give up some fairly hefty things in this life as they remain faithful to you. God, I pray that you'd bless them. I pray that you'd comfort them. I pray that they would never lack anything in the community of God's grace, of your grace here that we have at Village Church. Uh, so Lord, I do pray that you would give us boldness and, and, and courage to go out, to share this good news, that we would be captivated by it ourselves, uh, such that it just naturally overflows, spills out from us uh, as, as, as we help to, to go on and make and mature disciples and, 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 and help you engage in the ministry of making all things new. Uh, we pray all these things uh, for your glory and for your beauty. Amen.